0: Chapter Five of the History of Burke and Hare and of the Resurrectionist Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Bonita Springs, Florida. The History of Burke and Hare by George MacGregor, Chapter Five. The early life of Burke and MacDougall, their meeting with Hare and his wife, some notes concerning the latter. Thus far we have traced the genesis and the ultimate development of the resurrectionist movement, and it will now be necessary to relate with some detail the connection of Burke and Hare and their female associates with the vile traffic, showing how they, by adding to the brutality inherent in it, ultimately encompassed their own ruin and unconsciously freed medical science from restrictions tending to stifle inquiry and prevent progress. About these people comparatively little is known, and certain it is that had it not been for the timidity of the press of the period there would have been abundance of material more or less reliable. James MacLean, a hawker belonging to Ireland, who was well acquainted with all the parties, furnished a few particulars concerning them to the publishers of what may be called the official account of the trial, issued in 1829, but what he was able to give was very meagre. Maclean's notes, however, have been supplemented, and apparently in some instances corrected, by the subsequent investigations of Alexander Leighton. The most notorious of these great offenders against the law of God and man was William Burke. He was the son of Neil Burke, a laborer, and was born in the early part of the year 1792 in the parish of Oray, about two miles from the town of Strabane, County Tyrone, Ireland. Receiving a fair education, he, though of Catholic parentage, first went as servant to a Presbyterian minister, but becoming tired of that kind of employment, he tried in succession the trades of a baker and a weaver. MacLean, however, makes no mention of these two attempts, and says Burke's original trade was that of a shoemaker or cobbler. None of these trades suited his taste, and ultimately he enlisted in the Donegal militia in the capacity either of pfeiffer or drummer, probably the former as he was known in after-life as an excellent player on the flute. During this time he was the personal servant of one of the officers of the regiment, and he married a young woman belonging to Balina. When the regiment was disbanded he went to live with his wife and family, and he was engaged as the servant of a country gentleman. Here an event occurred which may be regarded as the turning point of what had hitherto been a life of respectability. Burke was anxious to obtain the subtenancy of a piece of ground from his father-in-law, but they quarreled over the matter. How this dispute came about is unknown, but it was of sufficient severity to cause Burke to leave his wife and family and emigrate to Scotland, and sufficient to prevent him from returning again to his native land. He arrived in this country about the year 1817 or 1818, when the Union Canal, between Edinburgh and the Fourth and Clyde Canal, near Camelon, was in the course of construction. Making his way eastwards, Burke obtained employment as a laborer on this important undertaking, and while so engaged he resided in the little hill village of Maddiston, a mile or two above Pollmont. It was here that he met Helen Dougal or MacDougall the partner of his guilt and his fellow prisoner at the great trial this woman was born in the neighboring village of Reading. the record of her career up to her meeting with burke is not altogether good in early life she made the acquaintance of a sawyer of the name of macdougall to whom she had a child during his wife's lifetime when macdougall became a widower the young woman went to live with him and though they had never gone through a regular marriage ceremony cohabitation was sufficient to constitute them man and wife and she bore MacDougal's name after a time the couple left madison for leith where mcdougal worked at his trade here he was struck down by typhus fever and his illness terminated in death in queen's Ferry house his female companion and her two children returned to her old place of abode a loose and dissolute woman even more so than when she went away at the time of the trial in eighteen twenty eight it was reported that she had had two husbands one of whom was then alive but that is uncertain this however is an outline of her life up till the advent of burke in madison when she was living there with her two children a boy and a girl Burke and she threw in their lot together and lived as husband and wife. This irregular life came to the knowledge of the priest of the district, who advised Burke to leave MacDougall and return to his lawful wife and to his family in Ireland. But he refused to do so, and as a consequence was excommunicated. The early religious training of Burke made him feel uncomfortable under the displeasure of the church. But he would not nevertheless carry out the dictates of his priest or of his own conscience he continued to live with Macdougall, not a very happy life certainly both of them being somewhat given to drink but they appeared to have taken a liking for each other which kept them together through every difficulty for some reason or other probably because employment in the neighborhood of madison had become scarce Burke and his companion removed to Edinburgh, and took up their quarters in what is known as the Beggar's Hotel in Portsburg, owned by an Edinburgh worthy of the lower class, Mickey Colzine by name. Here Burke reverted to the trade of shoemaker or cobbler, and whether he was bred to it or not is a small matter, for he seems to have been able to make use of it, when in need, in the way of gaining a livelihood. He was in the habit of buying old boots and shoes, and repairing them, after which Macdougall hawked them among the poor classes in the city, and in this way they were able to make from fifteen to twenty shillings a week. Burke and Macdougall, however, were not long resident in the beggar's hotel, when it was burned to the ground, and all their goods were destroyed. Among their possessions so lost were the books belonging to the Burke, and these were, Ambrose's Looking into Jesus, Boston's Fourfold State, Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, and Booth's Reign of Grace. It has been said that this little library of theological works belonged to Burke, but it may be suggested that they were not of the type to be owned by an excommunicated Roman Catholic. They rather appear, judging from their character, to have belonged to MacDougall, for they are all of the kind affected in most Scottish homes of the period. It is worth remembering, however, that Burke was a man of a naturally religious turn of mind, though not bound up in any particular form of faith, and that in all his after-actions, brutal and godless though they were, the inward warning voice never left him at peace, except when his senses were steeped in drink. after this disaster hired new premises in brown's clothes off the grass market and burke and Macdougall moved there with him here religious matters attracted burke's attention and for a time his actions to a certain extent were modified by them he attended services in an adjoining house and even went the length of an endeavor to reform his landlord who was an inveterate swearer The appearance of better things did not, however, continue long, and the old course of life was renewed. It would be difficult to say what would have been the course of Burke's life, had MacDougall and he never met. In all probability it would have been less guilty, and would have had a happier result. Had their paths been separate, they might never have been heard of, and a series of crimes disgraceful to humanity might possibly have never been committed. But as it happened, it is to be feared that the influence of the one upon the other was for evil. Maclean described Burke as a peaceable and steady worker when free from liquor, and even when intoxicated he was rather jocose and quizzical and by no means of a quarrelsome disposition. Macdougall, on the other hand, was of a dull, morose temper sober or otherwise quarrels between them were of frequent occurrence one point of dispute between them and which gave rise to at least one severe disturbance was burke's relations with a young woman a near friend of MacDougall, who became jealous of her the three lived in the one room and one occasion the two women fell out so seriously that they sought to settle their differences by force The man did not interfere until he saw that the younger woman was being worsted. Then he turned on MacDougall and beat her most brutally until, indeed, it was thought that she was beyond recovery. Notwithstanding their apparent incompatibility, the couple kept well together, and when the trade in Edinburgh grew dull, they removed to Peebles, where Burke wrought on the roads. By this time his habits had not improved. His whole moral character, never very robust, though not without a susceptibility to religious impressions, was on the decline, and gradually he became the associate of men and women whose experience of wickedness was greater than anything to which he had yet sunk. In the autumn of 1827 Burke and Macdougal wrought at the harvesting near Pennyquick, and returning to Edinburgh they went to lodge with William and Mrs. Hare, the companions and participators in the crimes that afterwards made them amenable to the laws of the country. Burke met Mrs. Hare, with whom he had previously been acquainted, and over a glass of liquor he mentioned to her that he intended going to the West Country to sink for employment. She urged that he and MacDougall should take up their abode in her house in Tanner's clothes Portsburg, where he would have every facility for carrying on his trade of a cobbler. To this he consented, and he again set up business in a cellar attached to the house in which Hare, who was a hawker, kept his donkey. Thus were these two men brought into contact, and from this accidental meeting arose that close and intimate connection which enabled them to originate and carry out their diabolical plans against their fellow-creatures. This William Hare, whose name afterwards came to be so indissolubly connected with that of Burke, was about the same age and was also a native of Ireland. Brought up without any education or proper moral training, he rapidly slipped into a vagabondizing kind of life. His temper was brutal and ferocious and when he was in liquor he was perfectly unbearable. Before leaving Ireland he was employed in farm work, but better prospects across the channel made him come to Scotland, where he became a laborer, like his companion in later life in the construction of the Union Canal, though there is no evidence that they met each other until the year 1827 in Edinburgh. Hare afterwards working as a lumper with Mr. Dawson who had a wharf at Port Hopton, the Edinburgh terminus of the canal. While so engaged, he became acquainted with a man of the name of James Log or Log, who has been described as a decent, hard-working man. Before this time, Log had held a contract on the canal near Winchburg, at which his wife, a strong-minded, able-bodied woman, labored along with the men in her husband's employment wheeling a barrel as well as the best of them. After this Hare turned a hawker, at first with a horse and cart, but laterally with a hand-barrel. In the interval Log and his wife, Mary Laird, had opened a lodging-house at the back of the Westport well whence they removed to tanners' clothes, and with them Hare, on his change of employment, took up his abode. A quarrel with his landlord, however, made him seek other quarters but when Logg died in 1826 he returned, and, as Maclean puts it, made advances on the widow, and she consenting the couple were regularly married. Mrs. Logg, or Hare, as she had now become, had had one child to her previous husband. Her character, while before not beyond reproach, had been further blackened by her notorious misconduct with a young lodger in the house. This man left her, and Hare stepped in to fill his shoes. The lodging house into the possession of which Hare had entered on his marriage with the widow of its now previous landlord contained seven beds, and the earnings from his new property gave him the means of drinking without the necessity of working. He took full advantage of his position, became more and more dissolute, and went about bullying and fighting with all and sundry. His wife was not exempt from his brutality, but then she was as ready for drinking and quarrelling as he was himself. With these people, Burke and Macdougal went to reside after their return from Pennyquick. Two stories are related by MacLean, who knew all the parties well, which serve to illustrate the characters of Burke and Hare. In the autumn of eighteen twenty-seven, MacLean, Hare, Burke, and some others while on their way from Carnwath in Lanarkshire, where they had been on the shearing, went for refreshment into a public-house a little to the west of Balerno, a few miles from Edinburgh. The liquor was served, and the party clubbed together to pay the reckoning. The money was placed on the table, and Hare coolly picked it up and put it in his pocket. Burke, knowing the temper of the man, and desiring to avoid a disturbance, paid for the whole of the liquor consumed out of his own pocket. McLean, however, was more outspoken, and on leaving the house told Hare that it was a scaly trick for him to lift the money with the intention of affronting the company. Hare knocked the feet from under McLean and kicked him severely on the face with his iron-shod calker boots, laying his upper lip open. Mrs. Hare, again, was equally brutal. Once from returning from his work at the canal, Hare found his wife very tipsy. He remonstrated with her, and then lay down on his bed. She lifted a bucket of water and emptied the contents over him. A desperate struggle followed, and, as McLean adds, as usual with her, she had the last word and the last blow. Before concluding this chapter, it may be of interest to give the description of the personal appearance of Burke and his wife as furnished by the Caledonian Mercury of Thursday, the twenty fifth, december eighteen twenty eight. It refers to their appearance at the trial, but it may be taken as generally relating to their looks at the time they entered upon their course of crime. The male prisoner, Burke, as his name indicates, is a native of Ireland. He is a man rather below the middle size, and stoutly made, and of a determined, though not peculiarly sinister, expression of countenance. The contour of his face, as well as the features, is decidedly Milesian. It is round, with high cheek-bones, gray eyes, a good deal sunk in the head, a short, snubbish nose, and a round chin, but altogether of a small cast. His hair and whiskers, which are of a light sandy color, comported well with the make of the head and complexion, which is nearly of the same hue. He was dressed in a shabby blue surtout, buttoned close to the throat, and had, upon the whole, what is called in this country a wolf rather than a ferocious appearance. Though there is a hardness about the features mixed with an expression in the gray twinkling eyes far from inviting. The female prisoner, Helen MacDougall, is fully of the middle size, but thin and spare-made, though evidently of large bone. Her features are long, and the upper half of her face is out of proportion to the lore. She was miserably dressed in a small gray-colored velvet bonnet, very much the worse of the wear, a printed cotton shawl and cotton gown. She stoops considerably in her gait and has nothing peculiar in her appearance except the ordinary look of extreme poverty and misery common to unfortunate females of the same degraded class chapter five the early life of burke and Macdougall.